Hi everyone, you're listening to a Titanic podcast where I try to hold the world record of recording myself saying the word Titanic over and over again. I'm your host, Stephanie Green, and on this podcast I talk about horrifying stories in excruciating detail. This episode is a kind of culmination of information I wanted to cover before I dive into the infamous maiden voyage of the ship, so if it jumps between topics with little to no segue... Sorry, not sorry. Like I hinted at in the last episode, we will be talking about Titanic's christening and a near miss. Or rather, the Titanic's lack of a christening. You see, White Star Line never christened any of their ships. There was no champagne, no bottle to break, nothing. As one shipyard worker put it, they just builds them and shoves them in. You'd think that Titanic would get some sort of ceremony, figuring it was now the largest ship in the world. Hosting a huge event for this would have made for some major successful marketing, but no. Even without planning a huge ceremony, though, the launching of the Titanic, like all ships, was super complex. I'd put the entire process into my own words, but Titanic Belfast already has a great description. It's written by maritime historian Paul Loudon Brown, so here it is, and I quote, In order to transfer the weight of the hull from the building blocks on which she was constructed to the launch way, it was necessary to remove the shores, bilge blocks, and keel blocks. Once the shipwrights had completed this difficult task, a wooden cradle supported Titanic's bows. The only thing preventing her from running away were dog shores held in place by wedges. The keel blocks were removed first, an operation carried out carefully, very carefully. The shipwrights worked along the whole length of the keel, marking certain sets of blocks respectively with red, white, and blue paint, indicating the order in which they were to be split out or removed. Splitting out involved inserting a chisel in the cap piece of the block and literally splitting the wood away with sledgehammers. The blocks painted red were split uh, about 24 hours before Titanic's launch. So early in the morning of May 31st, 1911, the white blocks were split out and just a few hours before the launch, the blue blocks were split out. These blocks were located under her stern, and as the tide rose, the shipwrights quickly worked forward towards the bow, ahead of the rising water. And, end quote. Along with splitting the blocks, 23 tons of tallow, train oil, and soft soap were used to allow the Titanic to slide. And for those of you who only recognize soft soap among those other three, those three lubricants, don't worry, you're not alone. Tallow is rendered beef or mutton fat, and train oil is actually just oil from a sperm whale. And the soap helped blend the fat and oil together to create one big sludge that uh, reports say smelt terrible. <laughs> At this point in the process, only the dog shores and the large launching trigger held the Titanic in place. Now, when you hear trigger, you might think that Titanic is going to be launched like it's a bullet in a casing. This trigger was held in place by hydraulically pressurized water inside of a valve. If someone were to pull the release lever, the valve would release the pressurized water, moving the trigger and thus moving the ship. 
Although there was no christening ceremony, like I said, there was still about 100,000 spectators in attendance as Titanic entered the water for the first time. Although the launch was deemed flawless, it didn't go without any bad news. A 43-year-old ship worker by the name of James Dobbins died on the day of launch or shortly thereafter. I heard it both ways on uh, different sources. Some people say he died that very same day. Some other people say he died a couple days later. So bear with me on that. He was helping break the timber stays that held the ship in place as she slipped down the greased launchway when a heavy wooden support fell and crushed him. His colleagues freed him and placed him in a company car that rushed him to Royal Victoria Hospital. Unfortunately, although still alive for two days or later on in the day after the accident, he succumbed to his injuries. The coroner's report detailed his death as being a result from shock and hemorrhage following a fracture of the pelvis. So now, back away from the bad news now, Titanic was officially in the water and was preparing for her sea trials and her maiden voyage. It was the time for White Star to start publicizing their newest and greatest ship. And what do you do when you want to turn a few heads? You make your product sound amazing. Unsinkable is a word that comes to mind when anyone talks about the Titanic. But when was the first time the ship was called unsinkable? In a publicity brochure in 1910, White Star Line stated that the two vessels, the Olympic and the Titanic, were designed to be unsinkable. Keyword here is designed. On June 1st, 1911, when Titanic's hull was launched, the Irish News and Belfast Morning News described the Titanic's design and concluded that the ship was practically unsinkable. Practically. A shipbuilder magazine around the same time also discussed the design of Olympic and Titanic and mentioned that they were practically unsinkable as well. You can see the domino effect here of everyone calling it unsinkable. It seemed wherever anyone looked, when it came to news of the newest White Star superliners, the word unsinkable was used quite a bit. The world was abuzz with anticipation and excitement at this new ship, and the media definitely ran with it. Just because Titanic was launched on May 31st, 1911, didn't mean she was ready for passengers. If you look closely in pictures of the ship taken just after its launch and at the start of its maiden voyage, you might notice something. Titanic was set higher in the water, uh, she sat higher in the water during its launch than Titanic did on its maiden voyage. This is because there was nothing in her yet. There were no fancy statues, no beds in the staterooms, no carpet, no pots and pans in the kitchen, nothing. Titanic now had to be fitted out. So call on those carpenters and electricians because it's time for some hard work. In Titanic's case, it was a bit of an easier task to find plans on how to design her interior because she was almost an exact copy of the Olympic. Uh, But there were some changes made, however, including a thousand extra tons of luxurious details, including like this um, covering on the front bow on the passenger deck because people on the Olympic were complaining of getting water splashed on them from near the bow. So they included that on Titanic as well. On February 3rd, 1912, Titanic was put into dry dock again at Thompson Graving Dock 
to start the final phase of construction. This was when she received her three propellers and other finishing touches, All the things necessary for Titanic to be a great hotel and a great ocean liner were received, installed, and tested. Kitchen appliances, candelabras, wireless equipment, navigational equipment, even the china and cutlery were received and stored at this time. And about two months later, Titanic was just about complete. Just two days after Titanic was once again in the water, she fired up her engines for the first time and started her sea trials. What are sea trials, you may be asking? It's when a watercraft undergoes a series of tests to make sure she is seaworthy or ready for service. At the time, Titanic carried 78 stokers, greasers, and firemen to run the boiler room and engines, as well as 41 other crew members. Over 100 workers may seem like a lot, but it was more like a skeleton crew, um... The Marconi operators were there. They were responsible for the wireless communication system, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride. Uh, They kept the Titanic in touch with other ships and ports in the area, as well as did some fine-tuning to the equipment to get it ready to go. Also aboard were representatives of various companies, including Thomas Andrews and Edward Wilding, remember two of the ship's architects. Uh, Bruce Ismay and Lord Peary, however, were not on board at this time. To pass the trials, Titanic had to run uh, while all three engines were in operation, and then uh, she had to run on each engine individually. She had a high-speed test where she had to travel in a straight line at a speed of 20 and a half knots, and it tests to show how long it took for her to come to a full stop. She also had several start-stop tests as well as many turning tests. Finally, Titanic had to undergo a test in which the ship is traveling straight ahead and then instructed to turn the wheel hard over as far right or left as it could possibly go. And so the Titanic made its big circle during the test that had a diameter of 3,850 yards. How that is in relation to other ships, I'm sure it's much bigger because Titanic is a much bigger ship, but I, I really don't know anything else about that. But everyone says that's the diameter, so I wrote it down. The trials were conducted under the supervision of Francis Carothers, a Board of Trade surveyor, who approved Titanic for official use by White Star Line just eight days, eight days before Titanic would be leaving Southampton. Carothers signed a certificate called an Agreement and Account of Voyages and Crew, which was only valid for 12 months. Unfortunately, Titanic never got a chance to renew that certificate. We're getting close, everyone. Hang, hang in there. We're, we're almost there. <laughs> there was still a lot of last-minute tasks to complete before Titanic was ready to take on passengers. People were still carpeting and painting. There was still a lot of activity going on. Tons of linens, bed sheets, and food was brought aboard, and finally Titanic's first bunch of cargo was loaded. It was just a steady stream of delivery and delivery to Titanic because it was going to take a lot of sheets and a lot of food to make 1,300 passengers and 900 workers happy. The bedsheets arrived from White Star's own laundry facility that they built right next to the docks of Southampton for the convenience of all of their ships. It was located on the located on the second floor of a building owned by Harlan and Wolf and had the newest equipment necessary for washing all of their bed sheets needed for its ships. This facility could run 24-7 
which probably would have been necessary if it needed to quickly get Titanic ready for another round of fresh linens and bedding when it came into port. Titanic needed 7,500 blankets, 6,000 tablecloths, 15,000 single sheets, 15,000 pillow slips, 45,000 table napkins, and over 40,000 different kinds of towels. And on board, there was also so, so much food. I can't even imagine what this would look like. 75,000 pounds of fresh meat, and that's not including fish or chicken. 40,000 eggs, 40 tons of potatoes, 7,000 heads of lettuce, 36,000 oranges, 2,200 pounds of coffee, 6,000 pounds of butter, 20,000 bottles of beer, 1,500 bottles of wine, and thousands upon thousands of different kinds of plates and glasses needed for everything. Before Titanic could go anywhere, however, she still needed fuel and lots of it. Problem was, a national coal strike had just ended on April 6, 1912, which meant many other ships were scrambling to get their hands on coal. This huge strike lasted from February to April, and it did more than just impact sailing and trade. The strike left thousands dead of hypothermia in the bitter cold months, and over one million people were out of work. It was terrible, but working conditions at the time were also terrible. Trade union membership grew from 2 million in 1900 to just over 4 million in 1913. But I'm I'm not going to go any further into the details of the National Coal Strike, but I am planning on talking more about what it was like to work aboard the Titanic, so I'll, I'll be getting up on the subject of working in 1912 again. Of course, White Star Line had already come up with a plan to give Titanic the fuel she needed. So, great. Coal Strike, they already planned for it. They're not scrambling around, tr- scraping together coal. Several other ships gave up their allowance of coal to the Titanic so she could go on her maiden voyage. Passengers from those ships were simply moved to the Titanic so they could still make their transatlantic voyage. These ships included White Star's RMS Oceanic, which was the largest ship in the world from its launch in 1899 until 1901. Oceanic was held in dry dock so Titanic could make its first transatlantic voyage. You'll hear more about the Oceanic uh, the Oceanic again later on in the season. Captain Clark from the Board of Trade inspected the Titanic and reported that she carried 5,892 tons of coal, which he was certain was enough for the liner to make it to New York, without question. Clark was on board to clear Titanic as an emigrant vessel under the Merchant Shipping Act. Not only did he inspect the coal, but he also inspected the lifeboats in which starboard boats numbers 11 and 15 were lowered into the water so he could make sure that they were seaworthy. He also checked the fresh water supply, the food storage, and both crew and passenger accommodations. Everything had to meet standards. And of course, Titanic far surpassed the standards set forth by its time. We'll talk more about accommodations later on. Captain E.J. Smith and seven other officers were aboard the Titanic from its sea trials all the way to its docking in Southampton when Starline noticed something. Of the eight men, only two of them had the experience required to run Titanic for its maiden voyage, and so they made a crew change. 
In the original crew, William Murdoch was supposed to be chief officer and Charles Lightoller was supposed to be first officer. Once at Southampton, uh, Henry Wilde was added to the list of officers and was made the chief. So Murdoch was demoted to first and Lightoller was demoted to second. So you'd imagine that the rest of the officers would also just get demoted until you get to the sixth officer and then they were kicked off. But that wasn't the case. Second officer David Blair was kicked off the crew entirely with the rest of the officers remaining in the positions they had held since the sea trials. White Star announced that the previous lineup of the top crew would be reinstated after the maiden voyage. Since Captain Smith, Officer Murdoch, and Officer Wilde had been aboard the Olympic, it was deemed necessary that their experience was needed on board of the Titanic. Blair left the ship with his belongings before it set sail from Southampton. Whether he kept it as a souvenir or he simply forgot he had it, Blair took the lookout's locker key in which binoculars had been stored. Is this an important detail to know for later? You can decide that when we get there. And now the Titanic was ready for her maiden voyage. Finally! People spectating on the docks as Titanic left port were given quite a show. Not only were they witnessing history in the making, but they were also going to witness a suspenseful near miss. You see, many people, especially captains, were learning to stay as far away from the new superliners as possible following the Olympic Hawk collision. But Southampton's docks were barely big enough for Titanic. They even had to build a new dock just for her so she could moor. So when Titanic cast off and left the dock, it came within two feet of crashing into another liner. The waters were littered with moored ships who were just sitting docks. Most of them didn't have any coal, so they couldn't even move out of the way. Heck, Titanic was so new that even highly experienced Captain E.J. Smith wasn't even used to controlling her yet. It was just just so much bigger than any ship he had sailed before, excluding the Olympic that he was also the captain of. So he tried his best to carefully navigate Titanic away from the docks, and he was doing a pretty good job. Until the SS New York was pulled so strongly by Titanic's wake that she w- got pulled free from the dock. The ships were just a few feet away from each other when fast-acting tugboats were able to pull the New York away from the departing ship. It was super close. Of course, many people think the Titanic may have been given the time it needed to avoid the iceberg if it had actually collided with the New York, but many museums believe the collision could have delayed her by merely an hour, so how much time could that have actually saved? We'll never know. So Titanic has officially left Southampton And this is where I'm going to end this episode. I'm sorry. I don't mean to leave you on a cliffhanger. (laughs) So far, I've done a ton of notes already saved to kickstart a lot of these episodes. So I'm really cranking them out right now, as you've probably noticed. Um, But it's not going to be this way for long. I haven't really established any sort of timeline for this podcast. So the episodes are just going to come out when they come out. If you want to be notified right when a new episode comes out, 
Be sure to follow my Instagram and Twitter at a Titanic Podcast. If you have any questions for me or would like the transcripts for any of my episodes, email me at atitanicpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like a shout out on the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash atitanicpodcast. For a pledge as little as $3 a month, you'll be helping make this podcast grow and continue with other events in history. And also, I have not mentioned this before, but if you do have a suggestion on a topic you'd like to hear me do a mini episode on, uh, let me know. Uh, It it won't be a full season like the Titanic thing. I really want to do seasons for more topics that are big. Uh, like this one is, and do like full like nine, ten episodes long. But there are a lot that can be fit into a decently sized full episode. So if you do want to hear those, I'm totally willing to do them. Um, I do have you have to donate <laughs> for me to give you an episode. Um, but don't worry, this money is not this money is not for me to make money. It's just covering the books I might need to purchase and newspaper subscriptions that I'll need to get the proper information. Like, I do not, if you look at my sources, I don't just stick to Wikipedia. Wikipedia is a great starting point. I love Wikipedia, but I I really, really try to go far uh, into my research, and that would really help me. So you can do- make a one-time donation of $20 sent to my PayPal account. The, it's using the email address atitanicpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure you add the event you want covered in the description and your email so I can update you uh, about your mini episode and when it will be released. Um, so thank you, everyone, so much for listening, and stay tuned for Season 1, Episode 3, The Maiden Voyage. Bye-bye!